$5 to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Hi, here we are with another episode of Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk to the people who are leading user research in their organization. In 2018, Kevin Mims wrote in the New York Times about the Japanese word sundoku, a stack of unread books. And in a New Yorker article entitled, My Father's Stack of Books, Catherine Schultz reflects on what her family referred to as the stack, the books that accumulated in her parents' bedroom, especially on her father's side of the bed. These weren't just books to be read, but also books that had been read that should be kept near at hand. She estimated that the stack contained three to 400 books. For me, I switched a few years ago to getting rid of most books, passing them on to someone who might like them or giving them away in the community via Nextdoor or FreeCycle. I felt like hanging on to every book was becoming increasingly unmanageable and in some ways was creating a barrier to acquiring and thus reading new books. My Sundoku served as a last-in, first-out cue, but for me, unread books go in the bedroom and books that you want to keep should be displayed on bookshelves. I was a voracious reader of books as a kid, and at this point in my life, it's something I need to make a deliberate effort towards. I read on the internet all day. I read several magazines regularly. I read a print newspaper every day. Plus, I'm trying to watch a ridiculous number of television shows and movies on all the platforms. And oh yeah, podcasts, right? So as a kid, I really got into science fiction and especially sci-fi short stories. At a certain point, I set that genre aside, but maybe 15 years ago, I came across a phone book-sized annual collection of sci-fi short stories. And then I found the annual Best American Short Stories series. These books have got built-in portion control. Read at least one story in bed before going to sleep. But then I'd find myself in a bookstore staring at the shelves without any clue about which ones in the series I'd read. And even if I was home, if I'd given the books away after finishing them, I couldn't just go check my shelves to avoid repurchasing something I'd read. That's when I found Goodreads, a website and an app where I can organize the books I own but haven't read, the books I have read, and the books I don't own but want to read. There's a whole set of other things you can do on Goodreads. You can connect with other people and get their updates in your feed. You can post progress updates as you go through a book, and you can write and read book reviews. But for me, my primary motivation was to have a single location available to me anywhere to see what I had already read. My Goodreads usage stayed casual and intermittent for a couple of years, but when my local library opened a brand new building, I went in and renewed my library card, and, and that triggered a deliberate and focused shift to reading more books. I think the stack beside the bed has not decreased much in size, but I'm fine with that. I'm making use of the library website to put books on hold. Maybe it's a book I learn about from Twitter or an article in the newspaper. I've also been saving books on the library website that I'll want to put on hold later. I've been getting books from other libraries in California. I've been reading graphic novels and regular novels, both in print and on my iPad. One of the cool things about the library is that borrowing a book means that I have a deadline. It's not just that the book is expected back, it's that the deadline makes reading the book into a tangible accomplishment. It's due back on a certain date, and I finished it, and I returned it. 
I mean, I'm also free not to finish the book, but even so, that's something I can metaphorically cross off a list. And then this is where Goodreads comes back in, because even though I haven't connected with many people and I don't care too much who sees my updates, going to the site and marking the book as read with today's date is another marker of closure. I am definitely doing the reading for the reading, but there are these additional rewards, other bits of satisfaction. I guess we call this gamification, if that's even still a thing. I might write a tiny review. Occasionally I've asked a question when I didn't understand something, but mostly it's about making that mark when it's done and then feeling a sense of pride or accomplishment from the accruing list of books that I've read. This public-ish list announces something about me and what I value, and I enjoy building that, even if it's just for me to look at and reflect on. Taking a book off the stack has a tangible satisfaction, but I find it a bit more diffuse to move an actual book from a stack to a shelf than to do the analogous operation on an abstracted book in a digital interface. Go figure. But this is just how I use Goodreads. I'm sure it's hardly unique, but it's also one of many different ways that people could and probably do use the site. I mean, I don't have any idea what other usage models are, but of course, we have processes and tools for finding out. And this isn't just about Goodreads, but for any product or service that has many features, different sections, different experiences, it's essential to try to understand how people are using your product. The risk isn't only considering the product as a set of separate features. Who is using this particular feature and how? And for another feature, how is that being used and by whom? If you are working on a product that has this many facets, you are better served in learning about the bigger picture that may weave its way through different features, as well as other tools or products that support the underlying goal. If you want to improve or optimize or extend the capability you are offering, you'll want to do so based on an understanding of those goals, not just feature by feature. That means you need to think about how your teams are organized, and sometimes the way you'd organize a software team to build different features isn't the same as how you should organize designers to design those features, and almost certainly not how you should organize researchers to inform the different decisions you're making across features. Of course, this is the kind of thing I can help with. Often I work with clients to help them get a handle on what their customers want to accomplish and look at how the team can focus product and design decisions to best support the people that use their product. The teams I work with come from a variety of industries and have varying levels of experience in learning about their customers and acting on those insights. I see this podcast as an extension of that work, something that I'm able to share with you. And so the best way to support this podcast is to support my business, hire me to lead user research projects, or to coach your own team as you talk to users. Also, I run in-house training workshops to teach people how to get better at fieldwork and analysis skills. Get in touch and let's discuss what we might do together. I'd also love to know more about how this podcast is helping you in your work. Email me at donuts at portugal.com or on Twitter at dollars to donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Let's get to my conversation with Ashley Graham. She's a design research leader focusing on digital at IBM in New York City. All right. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I have a very, uh, at this point, traditional way of starting, which is to ask you to introduce yourself. Who are right. you? What do you do? 
Yeah, so I'm Ashley Graham. I lead design research for the digital part of IBM. Um, that means we focus on the customer journeys that our clients or potential clients are taking. And we bring a mixed methods approach to both qualitative research, quantitative research, and generating insights that can help drive our business and drive innovation for our users. Can you give a little context about, you said the digital part of IBM, but IBM is this huge company that for those of us outside, it's, I don't, I, like, I personally don't have a good mental model of like what this company does even, yeah. you know, in 2019 and how it's divided up and sort of where you are and what, what your efforts are focused on. Yeah. So as you can imagine, IBM is huge. We have a large breadth and depth of a portfolio. Digital really sits across all of that, right? So we have more legacy parts of our business. We have newer, innovative parts of our portfolio. And digital really seeks to understand across, right? Uh, what are the user needs or client needs across the portfolio? How can we bring all the parts of IBM together, all our capabilities and expertise, and bring that through a digital experience? Um, and so that's not something that uh, IBM has traditionally done. It's kind of something new. And so our team, the digital part of IBM, IBM really drives best practices around digital experience, both from a design and also a business perspective. Can you uh, unpack digital a little bit? I mean, again, I'm just pulling in very yeah. old mental models of IBM as kind of back in the legacy days, you know, like hardware company. Yep. <laughs> but, so what does digital mean now? That's a good question. And that's that's the question we're answering, right? IBM has this over 100 year history, right? We're going into our uh, 108th year this year. And traditionally we've been face-to-face, -face, right? The client comes to the client representative. They tell them about their problems. They tell them about their architecture and any infrastructure and needs. And then the client rep goes back to IBM and says, okay, what do we have? How can we serve the client, move them forward in a way that serves people within that business, right? But if we want to scale, if we want to grow, we want to transform ourselves to really thrive in the 21st century, we have to shift that model, right? We have to think about digital ways of finding new customers or customers finding us. Uh, we have to think about digital ways to self-serve capabilities. And then we have to think about excellent user experience, Right, because um, that's a critical part of a digital experience is having intuitive ways to find things, get my tasks done, and and move on to the rest of my day. And so, how does the idea of journeys, which you kind of mentioned right off the top, like what does that mean in that context? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think you know, if I think of like a B two C company or a, a consumer company, a, a journey might be me taking a ride to California. How am I going to get there? We could break that down to me discovering, you know, the best way, right? Am I going to take a plane or a train or a car? What are the different things I need along my journey? Um, how do I get there? At IBM, we kind of have to zoom out because the journeys are much more complex than, right, taking a ride as an individual person. We're talking about leading and helping organizations achieve their key routes to value. Um, so we'd like to actually use this metaphor of the United States in the federal highway system. Before the federal highway system was implemented in the U.S., if you were trying to journey across the United States, 
it was it was a quite a journey. Each state has their own way of moving people through roads. They have their own signage, own you know signals and and best practices. So we are really looking to create those interstates, the the fewest fastest interactions that it takes to solve a large enterprise's needs. And so that means we have to think about the full spectrum of right technologies, people, processes, our client organization's own transformation. And we really have to understand a lot of a lot of different things in order to design for that. So a journey really is like an organizational transformation for our clients. It might be um, helping them transform the way that the people work within their organization. It might be taking them from an on-premise hardware infrastructure to a cloud. And so it's, it's a big journey that we're talking about at the level of IBM. Right. You know, given the as complicated as it is to figure out how you're going to go from here to California, for example, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't sort of the, the complexity of the things I think that you're talking about at an organizational level. It's a little mind boggling, I think, too. There's just complexity. There's a lot of complexity. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, right, it, when I'm traveling from New York to California, I probably have less constraints than an organization that's, you know, invested 40 years in their infrastructure and is looking to, like, how can they maintain and, and build on the investments they've made over time? So are there are a lot of constraints we have to consider, right, within our client organizations. There are a lot of long term needs that we have to consider. And so, from a research perspective, Perspective, it's really about putting together the full picture of our users' needs and being able to consider and, and design for that in sort of a flexible way. And also being able to reflect that we understand those deep uh, needs and then being able to show that we can guide through complex decision making, through long term projects, and ultimately to help our client organizations arrive at a future state. Okay, so I'm I'm a big enterprise and has some technology infrastructure that's been around for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I come to you and the rest of IBM and say, I'm interested in making certain kinds of changes and others that I don't even know what they are. What kinds of activities do you and the rest of your organization, well, let's talk about you and the team you work with. What kinds of activities do you undertake to start responding to that? Yeah, and so that's, our team is really focused on organizing what that experience is like. And so say I'm going through a a cloud transformation, right? The client is journeying to cloud. That requires a lot of different decisions. So uh, what we do is we, uh, my team looks across IBM and says, okay, what are all the capabilities that we have from a services consulting, a technology perspective? Maybe IBM comes in and helps guide those decisions over time, or even embeds and helps in some of the architecture or development. But it really, uh, in order for us to serve those transformation needs, uh, we have to bring together a really diverse set of capabilities that you know IBM really excels in. So there's a, there's an internal examination. You're talking about looking inward and saying, well, mm-hmm. what what are the pieces we can put together here? How are you assessing what their needs are to figure out what pieces you would bring to bear? That's a great question. So I think there's that inside out, right? There's the inside out view, right? What do we have? What capabilities does IBM have from a technology and expertise perspective? But also we have to look outside in, right? We can't just rely on our historical knowledge or our internal strategy. So we do a lot of actual ethnography and talking to people that maybe haven't been with us for 40 years, talking to people that have been with us 
for 40 years in understanding the patterns of needs. And we kind of talk about it in terms of key needs or key journeys. Like what are the most important uh, things that are happening in the market from a IT perspective or cloud and cognitive perspective? We bring those in and we kind of match them up to our inside strategy and see, okay, for 2019, what are the key journeys that we need to focus on and how can we line up our capabilities to serve those? So it's kind of this dual lens, right? We're looking inside out, we're looking outside in and and the synthesis work really is understanding what where do we put focus? How do we organize ourselves to be able to deliver on those key things? Right, there's something I'm I'm grappling with here even just to find the right kinds of questions because I think you're talking about like doing research to plan. Like you're not talking about uh, doing ethnography to figure out what uh, what the solution looks like doing ethnography to find out what's sort of this larger context mm. to figure out how to take on a much more complex process. Exactly. That, okay. And it, it really, it kind of uh, reminds me of like a systems thinking perspective, right? We have to map the full spectrum of needs, understand, right, if you think of a service design model, what's happening off stage, what's happening front stage, right, as uh, users interact with us, and then what's happening backstage. So we map that full spectrum, and then we decide, okay, how? what's the best way to deliver on the needs that we see across? So again, I, my model may be kind of broken here, but if it's it's kind of planning to plan, or again, I hate to put my labels on top of yours, <laughs> but I just, I'm, I'm, I'm working to make sense here. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not, you're setting the stage for sort of exploring and, and building a solution for IBM to do that. So even in doing this, building this large map, this initial map, you are looking at needs and looking at processes and journeys. Mm -hmm. Does the building and, you know, deploying of these kinds of solutions that support transformation, is there activities in that process that look like, you know, what, what we might consider user research? Absolutely. So I should say my team is really focused on journeys, right? the customer journey, there are research teams that focus more on solutions, Hmm. right? And so we have to have this feedback loop between the teams that are working in products or services and that are more embedded in the day-to-day user research, right? Generating requirements, needs, evaluating the uh, the quality of the user experience, right? Working with engineers, working with product managers, right? There, there are teams that are very dedicated to that and they have incredible expertise in the technologies in that context. But we also have to keep in mind if we're talking about these key journeys, how do those products and services add up? Right? How do they add up to really solve the big needs that we see from our clients? And so someone has to kind of be that layer on top and, and the mechanism to pull together the teams, pull together the expertise and capabilities that we have within IBM. And, and so that's our team. Um, and so in, in some ways, we're researchers. And we do user research, right? We bring that outside-in perspective, but we're also service designers in that we're really designing how the full system and organization works. I, I feel like there's another uh, facet to what you're doing, though, mm-hmm. in the and maybe that just falls under the umbrella of service design, but creating this this, this deep understanding which informs this plan. Plan is kind of the word I keep throwing into this. But also 
serving as being in dialogue with the sort of teams that are doing a little more the deep requirements. It sounds like that's a little more day to day. That's the the detailed view versus the the overarching view, which you're you're capturing. I mean, just uh, and I guess this speaks to the complexity and the scope of the kinds of you know projects you undertake. It's uh, it's interesting for me to think about this overarching layer of understanding that's kind of crafted that is not about what are sort of the finishes going to be on the details of the interactions, but is really yep. this, this this big view. That's really interesting. And so I'm curious about. I mean, what what I think goes with sort of the scope that you're talking about, some time horizons that must be interesting. If there's, you know, a certain effort to make a plan and then a certain effort to, you know, build and support and kind of roll out things. Yeah, I don't know. What's is there a is there a typical time that you're thinking about when you work on these programs? That's a great question. So uh, this is a uh, fairly new effort. You know, we've been working with this customer journey and user need centric way of, right, thinking about the future of IBM for about, let's say, two years or less. Um, And so there was a phase where we were really framing, like, what does this look like? How do we talk about it? Um, What's the, what are the words? What's the right language to use? What is the relationship between a user a team, a journey, a product, you know, an IBMer, we were establishing that frame, right? Um, building on uh, the practice of service design. Um, and then there's a phase of piloting. That's kind of the phase that we're in now. So uh, you might have a great frame, but how does it get uh, really built into the DNA of the way that the company works? We found that it's really important to pilot work with uh, particular business units, understand are methods working, um, does, does the frame hold up, and do we know about enough about the way that the business works uh, yet in order to say, yes, we can deliver this way of working, right? Um, so we've, we've been on our own journey um, to right, do, do the, the research, the practicing to, to, to finish the frame. Um, and then there's a, there's a future, uh, effort to scale, right? How do we get all of IBM working like this? Um, and so that, that's really, that's kind of the plan, yeah. right? Um, and, and it requires a lot of influence, um, stakeholder engagement, a lot of consensus building and alignment. And, and so that, that is also the work that our team does. I mean, I think there's, as you talk, it's clear to me that there's a significant focus on the organization of IBM and how IBM mm. does things that sounds like that's where a lot of the effort is right now. Mm-hmm. Even though it's ultimately this is outside focused on customers that IBM is supporting, you're trying to, you know, you're built, you are building new practices in terms of how IBM does that. So your exactly. emphasis right now is on, at least a significant part, is on how IBM does the work that it's been doing in terms of building things for customers. Exactly. And I, I think that's that's critical. That's a critical place to focus, right? Because we could generate all the understanding of user needs um, uh, that we're able, right? Um, but how do we build that into the way that everyone thinks? And how do we go to market in a way that actually is accurate to our understanding? And so that really requires organizations 
organizational change in some ways. And and this work, right, this journey work is is building on uh, the design program that Phil Gilbert has been leading, you know, over the past five to six years, right? So he came to IBM and said, hey, uh, Jenny, our CEO, right, design is critical to the future of IBM, right? We need to focus on user needs. Um, and so as his program has scaled, uh, we've started to see a focus um, not only uh, from designers, but from other IBMers, right? Engineers, product managers, executives in adopting design thinking as a way to A, focus on user needs, but also work better cross-functionally um, um, across our business. And so this work that we're doing to really drive customer journeys is is building on that. And so we we leverage, you know, the 2,000 plus designers across IBM. And we're really disseminating these methods to them, building on the design practice that we already have. So is that an example? Because you mentioned, you know, influence being, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being a, a major part of what this team is looking at right now. You know, what is what are some you know, what are some practices for influence that? you found successful here or that you're exploring here? Yeah, I think being in a in a company that that uh, loves numbers, <laughs> I think that that's a reality. Um, I think what we've seen is that uh, qualitative research is really important, um, but it's it's actually not always enough. And so um, I've been really thinking about what does a mixed methods practice look like and how do we bring a lens of both qualitative and quantitative that at an executive stakeholder level is like stands up to snuff, right? Um, can we right, scale uh, the data points, the number of data points that we have um, to help show the uh, size or impact of a problem that we see? And then we can, can we then talk about its qualitative nature to help us um, look for solutions to solve those issues. So is that, I feel like uh, I get into versions of this discussion with people all the time around around influence and the kinds of things that you're talking about and where one one thing to do is speak their language mm. and another thing to do is to, I hate the verb educate because I think it's so patronizing. I don't know, to empower people with the mindset of your own language I mean, you see this like really bad practices where, you know, people may do a very small ethnographic study, but they'll like very, very small, but they'll quote percentages Mm, or they'll say mm -hmm. three out of eight or something like that as a way to make qualitative research a pure quantitative, which Mm -hmm. I get the impulse to do that because it's sort of speaking (laughs) in somebody's language, but it it also doesn't help that person because they are going to misinterpret. If you're misrepresenting and it invites misinterpretation. Right. Uh, I I think it's it's much more about showing the scale of the need that we're maybe not fulfilling yet as a company um, or the scale of a problem that exists um, in where, you know, two parts of our business are not aligned or, you know, there there's a, a gap in product market fit, right? So I, I, th- I think in the mixed methods practice that we're thinking about, it's much more about like understanding from a data perspective what's happening across the business, uh, what patterns do we see in behavior? Um, and then, right, layering on top of that or or inter- infusing that with some of the qualitative insights that we get by talking to customers, talking to people that in the space that we're working, right, cloud and cognitive capabilities and, and bringing those perspectives together. So it's less about like, okay, we have a number and it's more about, right, we have, we have looked across 
we've understood from like what thousands of people are doing, um, not just three to five. And so is the is that the starting point, and the qualitative is is the supplementary? Mm. Is that kind of the model? They they run in parallel. Okay. Um. So on my team, I have what we call design researchers um, that are really practicing user research and service design. We also have data scientists on our team, and so we are we're kind of running uh, different work streams, right? Let's say we're working on a journey of a client modernizing their infrastructure to a containerized environment, right? So we've taken that frame as a journey. Uh, the data scientists then go to the systems of record and 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 they use that frame to understand all that they can. Um, and they're really creative. I, I, I really want to emphasize that, uh, right? We have a lot of historical data as a company. How can we best leverage that to to inform our future? Um, so so they're, they're like getting access to support data, um, to financial data, and really putting together a picture of what what, what, how our business has run um, and what behaviors they see. The qualitative researchers are then, you know, talking to customers, talking to, you know, people on usertesting.com or using Respondent to really um, conduct moderated interviews and understand what are the needs, what are the business needs um, that organizations have. And, and then we bring those together. Um, and so that's, that's kind of exci- an exciting moment to start to see like what patterns are happening across. Um, and where can we derive greater insight by bringing those two uh, lenses together? How do you create the conditions where these stereotypically different mindsets, different methods, you know, how do you create conditions where the gestalt of what both those uh, uncover can be kind of extracted, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think what we're finding is that it's all about making it physical or visual, right? So we have a collaboration space where we just put everything on the walls, right? The war room, right? Take the take uh, what uh, the data scientists have found. Let's talk through it. Let's try to understand it, even if we don't have the, the expertise of the statistical figures. Uh, we then put the qualitative insights on the wall, right? And so we're, we're, we're mapping. We're doing a lot of mapping, systems map. We're doing a lot of like pain point gathering and, and making it all visual, making it almost tactile helps us to to put that picture together, the fuller picture together. And this is both both groups are doing this together, right? And uh, well, I should say that that is the practice that we're that we're growing. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's still forming, but um, yeah, I think that that's my vision is that we bring all of this insights that we have, we really work through it together, and and we're stronger and better in the way that we can uh, tell the business where to go next um, based on those those two influences. So there's just a lot of emergence, I guess. You are defining practices that, you know, are new to this part of IBM or new to IBM, maybe are new to sort of the field overall of well, all the fields that you're kind of pulling together. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you, what's your approach to trying to innovate in process? You know, you're making new things in the way that you're working. Where's that coming from? Yeah, it, it, it's all in pursuit of a customer journey that is excellent. We, we really try to keep that at the center, right? What problem are we solving? We're solving for our clients' business needs or our future clients' business needs. Um, um, so we keep that at the center, but we are constantly making, we're constantly trying methods, iterating on them, seeing can we get to a picture that is compelling, the people that are making really important decisions for our business strategy, our business's strategy. Um, and, and so it's it's a constant, it's a constant evolution. And I think what's exciting is when we get momentum or we get uh, resonance, we reach a point of resonance and, and 
whenever we 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 feel that we we run with it and so i think there's a certain intuition to the work right to say oh th- okay that this is compelling like how how can we amplify um an insight that we've had or an artifact that we've made um and how can we start to bring that into a standard practice over time you're obviously being reflective about the practice you know, you're, you're doing the work, but then you're also looking at, let's think about the best way to do this work and let's change that. Which Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think for us, what we've done is uh, we've we've had to make time and make space for that reflection. So now every week we have like a huge block of time on everyone's calendar and we all get together and, and talk through, work through the data we've gathered, synthesize together. That's like, that's critical, right? Synthesizing... Um, you know, just the qualitative research in Excel on your laptop is not is not the best way. It, it's about us all thinking together through a through a synthesis process, and and that's how we get to those moments of resonance. So, there's, well, there's a couple of things. I think you're making time to work together on the work, mm-hmm. but you're also making time to reflect on how you're working. Yes. And so we work, we actually work in agile sprints, which I know can be challenging for research, but it helps us to have have a cadence of working, doing the work, reflecting on the work and pivoting. Um, and so I, I think our leader, Sarah Brooks, she leads journeys at IBM. She's a distinguished designer um, that's really leading this mission. And, and she's been really intentional in making sure that we know the impact of the work that we're doing, that we're properly socializing and influencing uh, the rest of the organization, and that also we're really tight on the methods and practices that we employ. Can we go back to what you're saying about doing synthesis together and mm-hmm. kind of creating those moments of, of resonance, I guess? You said that, you know, Excel on your laptop by yourself is not really the way to go. I mean, I, I agree with you. I just love to hear you like make the case for why, for, for what happens when people are together. Mm-hmm. I love to hear more about what that feels like and, and how it's valuable. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> I've worked on a, a embedded in a product team as research lead, but leading by myself. Um, and I think you're going to, uh, one one researcher, one person is going to have a certain uh, interpretation of the data that they find. But when you bring in another person, you're always going to get a slightly different take. You're going to get a different um, set of assumptions. You're, you're, you're just going to have a more diverse, right? Even bringing a second researcher in, you're always going to have a more diverse take on the data that you found. And so I think doing synthesis together, there, there's two aspects to getting out of Excel. One, is 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 that um, diverse set of perspectives, right? The second is that when you're in your computer, you're not thinking in the same way that you are on a whiteboard. And, and this is the premise of design thinking, right? Externalizing the data that you found, externalizing your thought process um, just helps you move faster and, and clearer. And so I think getting out of Excel is really about those two things. And, and that's something that uh, we've been really uh, working on in our team. It just reminds me of this thing that used. I, it's a thing I remember from being a little kid. I don't know if this is unique to me or just general for everybody, but like being stuck on something in the classroom, going to stand next to the teacher's desk to ask a question, and by the time I could formulate the question, I'd figured it out. Or mm. That, or even if I'd verbalized it, I was like, "Oh, now I I, I know what it is." And that seems like the you know the externalizing process is a is a sense making activity. I think. Mm-hmm. Even to be able to communicate, right, uh, a data point that you found or or tell a story, right, that's a synthesis process. Um, that's a cognitive process. And so I think, you know, bringing that out of a person just helps helps 
us each grow in the way that we communicate and understand um, what we found. And then you, when you talk about, uh, you know, just even adding another researcher that is going to have a different perspective on something. I mean, I agree. And then, but I also hear the things that make people anxious about qualitative research. Like mm-hmm. you're sort of celebrating the, it's an aspect of uncertainty or of, right. We struggle with, I think, being perceived as, as rigorous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you say, well, if someone else is going to come in the room, they're going to see something differently than I am, but that's a strength. So someone might hear that and say, well, that's a, that's a weakness because how do we know what's real or how do we know what's true if, if you know, you can't even see the same thing as somebody else? Mm-hmm. I think, too, it, it's, it's less about fact. It's more about, like, what's important in the data. I think the synthesis process is a lot about prioritization and, and coding or articulation of what's important. And so I think what's important to one researcher might be different than what's important to another. Um, so it's less about like my truth, your truth. It's more about like what's important to our team, user needs, and then what's important to the business, right? Ultimately, that's customer lifetime value, meeting our business goals. So so in in getting out of Excel, working together, we can all talk more about like what's really important. And, and that's only going to make the work better. I feel like this ties a little bit to the influence part of our conversation as well because you know you are you know running things in a way that I think there's definitely a struggle in some teams to do this to have more than one person to take the time to reflect on their process to to devote the time to synthesis that it requires as opposed to kind of sitting down at your laptop and kind of pushing out the next set of recommendations are there elements or components of the practice that you have been building around that we've been talking about that you think could be you know, even adopted in small parts by somebody in a different kind of organization? Mm, that's interesting. Um, I, I should also say, you know, this is the practice that we aspire to execute on, right? Uh, it doesn't always happen every study, every day. Um, that's where we to aspi- aspire to go. But I, I think... One of the special things about the work that we do and the way that we understand customer journeys is that we really are taking a holistic view. And when you start to map the whole of what users need, what how they interact with us, our relationships with them, and then also what IBMers need, it's kind of hard to unsee once you see it. Once you see how two uh, IBMers are disconnected or their incentives aren't aligned and you see how that surfaces in the user experience, you kind of can't unsee it. And so I think um, although I lead the design research practice, I think there's an, an element of the expansion of design, right, to this like service design frame or even like a business model frame that I think we've we've gotten a lot of value out of, right? So user research is really important, but it, it is it is a foundation to a larger understanding. Um, and so I, I think other organizations could benefit from that, right? In, in adopting a, a more full picture of how user research and how user experience plays within in a larger context. And you brought it back to, to this, you know, in some ways your first customer is the organization of IBM. Even though IBM is focused on its customers as, as kind of core to its business, you're serving an internal, I mean, everything. You're serving everything about IBM. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's different. I mean, you mentioned sort of the, you know, the figuring out how to go from New York to California and those kinds of organizations. 
you know, they talk about being customer obsessed and, you know, the researchers and designers are thinking about improvements for the customer, which is also a great thing for a business to be thinking about. Right. But it's different than can we make can we make what we do here as a company better for us as a company mm-hmm. versus can we make a better product for our customers? Like success is going to be measured in different ways in those organizations. Right. And so we're designing, we call it orchestrating and also measuring the full customer journey. And and one question we have to ask ourselves is like, where do we sit in that customer journey? Because we're part of it, right? Backstage, we're somewhere. And I think we're actually pretty far backstage, right? Because our first line of user is is the IBMer. It's then the the client organization, right? But then our client organizations also have users. So right, there's there's this there's this spectrum of the definition of user, and we have to uh, figure out like who's the priority among that set of users, and and where is it best to focus? And that might shift over time. Maybe initially we're we're designing and establishing practices for IBMers. Um, but once those are set, like how, how can we push further towards more of a human-centered um, perspective? And, and ultimately, that's getting to delivering an experience that helps that end, end, end user mm. and their needs. I'm sure there are some visuals that go with this. That... <laughs> yeah. There's some big map. I think it's also best to give an example of this, right? So let's say um, we're designing a journey. I mentioned modernizing to a containerized cloud environment, right? Why? We have to understand, like, why are people, why are organizations doing that? Why are they modernizing? Um, What we found is a lot of it is about driving better, their own better customer experience, their own better user experience, a faster app, right? Phone, iPhone app, a better, right, way to search for for their users to search uh, within their business. And so it's, it's funny that we're going through our transformation, our client organizations are going through their transformation. And ultimately that that comes down to a person using a consumer thing. Um, so, so when I pick up, you know, my banking app and, and I check my savings account, right, that's ultimately coming back to something that IBM is probably involved in. And, and so how do we keep that, that, uh, that experience in mind, that very human, uh, very personal experience of knowing how much I have saved for my future? And, and how do we then comb through the technologies and capabilities and relationships and politics that, that affect that? Um, that there is a great breath in depth yeah. to the work that we do, I guess is what I'm saying. So if, uh, you know, this this person with a bank account is going to have a better experience, the company that that bank needs to have processes and tools and technology that enable them to be more contemporary in how they make products and services, which means someone like IBM can help them understand how to go about changing those processes, changing their tools, changing their infrastructure, so that they can then Mm -hmm. go make that app, which means that you and your team have to build processes and practices that can help IBM help that bank build better kinds of apps that help people have better experiences. Right. I and just said what you said, but yeah. I, I started going the other direction. I like that. Yeah, you mapped it back to, to the other direction. And I think as we can better serve our clients, right, we can help them get to a level where they can innovate. So ultimately, right, the work that we do is about moving towards the future, right, with, with, with uh, shepherding new technologies into the world, um, shepherding new practices, advising, guiding, and and ultimately in pursuit of of something that's 
ideally life-changing for someone. Great. Can I go back to something else they said before yeah. and maybe pivot from that? You're talking about that, you know, that moment of a researcher brings another researcher in to talk about some some, some data points or some some qualitative research, and that uh, this diversity of thought uh, is is a starts to add value because people look at things a different way. And you know that I mean the word diversity is is being used to represent a lot of different kinds of mm-hmm. things now. And I guess I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little about diversity overall in the, the design research field. What are you seeing or thinking about right now? Yeah, I think that's definitely something, you know, I'm thinking about, my boss is thinking about, and and IBM is thinking about. Um, from a research perspective, I think there, there's a lot to be desired in terms of having a diverse representation in, in, in who's practicing it. And I, I think that's really important if you're talking about shepherding a new technology, cloud or cognitive capability, AI, right? We need to have people that have different perspectives in the room. Right. If we're creating a data model and and it's going to affect the way that um, someone's bank account, right, or their financial service, <clears throat> it's really important to have people from different economic backgrounds or from different contexts that can understand what are the pressures, what are the needs, what are the pain points um, of of different type of types of economic situations. Right. So that's just one example of of where I think we could grow. I think when I look at researchers right? The wonderful research community. I don't see a ton of people that look like me. Um, And so even by, you know, talking to you today, I I have a hope that uh, we're growing and that that we'll continue to see more diverse faces, diverse ways of thinking and diverse backgrounds um, represented in the field. I think too, a second point, um, research has traditionally been like somewhat of an academic thing, right? It's been, it was something that PhDs did, right? Um, and and maybe other folks that didn't have a master's degree even were kind of shut out. But I think we're seeing a shift there. I think we're seeing people go through things like general assembly or self-taught, um, really thriving in, in the research community. I myself have a background in architecture and, and this crazy MFA program called transdisciplinary design. And so although I picked up research practices throughout both of those um, educational experiences, I think I have somewhat of an untraditional background in the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm leading uh, right, a team of researchers and able to really maybe bring more of a generalist p- perspective to the, to the practice and, and bring the things that I've learned in architecture from systems thinking and mapping um, and, and, and other practices. It, it just only helps enrich the field and, and enrich the work that we do. I, want, I do want to ask more about your background, but yeah. I, let, let's 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 keep talking about you know the you know what you see when you look at the community of research or what you don't see, I guess more importantly, right? I, I mean, let's just imagine someone is listening to this podcast who's kind of on the outside of the practice but is interested in it. That yeah, what's do you have you know suggestions for them if they don't if they also are. Uh, not from the the groups that are currently sort of dominating the population yeah. of research. Mm-hmm. What what do you tell them, or what do I tell them? What do we tell them? I think uh, one of the key things to any practice, right, or or field is language. So I think a lot of what we do is about having the right language. Um, it's it's having a mental model of right people behavior. 
psychology, right? Um, cognitive processing, kind of understanding that. So I, th- I think if you can kind of just pick up a foundation of, of understanding of those things, like how do we talk about user problems? How do we talk about user needs? How do we talk about motivations? If you can kind of pick up that sphere of things, I think it's easier to move into the space, right? So for me, methods are important, but methods can be learned. And so I think focusing on the mindset and and the perspective that we bring when we sit at a table of various stakeholders, right? We we have to bring that user lens. And that's the most important thing that we do. Um, it's, it's not about, are you the best interviewer? <laughs> are you the best person to like write the survey? Um, because Someone can always help you with that, but it's about do you, do you have the right mindset and do you speak up and and have and bring the voice of the user to whatever context that you're working in? And if you can communicate that and start to build off of that, I think you can have a viable career. Good. Would That's you great. agree with that? I'm curious. I mean, I think your point about mindset versus methods is really, if I think about just my earliest days in the field and uh, trying to hire people, there just, there weren't people, there was just was sort of an underpopulated practice, mm. whereas now I think there's sort of new people coming in all the time. I remember struggling with how do we articulate if someone would be, if we someone would be good to join our team, I worked at this agency and we used to just talk about, uh, you know, people who got it. And I mean, that might, in 2019, that might be a trigger phrase for sort of exclusionary (laughs) thinking. Uh, I think what we were trying to say then is what you're, is is the same as mindset. Mm -hmm. I think we were thinking about, there's a a frame of reference or just a a common language around, yeah, how you think about what we're here to do. I was at a product design consultancy Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're there to sort of serve the client, but also serve that we were doing research and trying to help the company serve the cus- their customers, even mm-hmm. though our customers were the company making the thing. So there was some advocacy and evangelism and, you know, facilitation and, and, and um, sort of understanding, hey, here's where people are at, so what are the opportunities to sort of help them or empower them or do something for them? I don't think we had a lot of clear language around. It was sort of new to the mm. practice or new for us. We were sort of, it was a long time ago and we were relatively isolated at that point. Yeah, I think, uh, I agree. I feel like I've had the conversation many, many times about you can learn methods, but there's this other thing that's sort of harder to teach. Mm. And so I think your advice is, is kind of, hey, get that thing, you know, yeah. that's the kind of thing that, so how do how does someone demonstrate that they have this thing that they have the mindset. Oh, I think right about it. That's mm. those have been some of the best moments um, in my career so far. Where you know I, I worked through a project and then I went and wrote about it because that that's that's a beautiful reflection process. What was important? How would I talk? How should I talk about this? Right? You might have had one conversation in your head or with your team when you were doing the work, but when you reflect back on it, like what stood out? What were the major like learnings? What were the moments that really mattered? And I think writing about maybe a project that you've done or how would you would like to do the work could be a really great way to yeah just get a stronger hold on on your own practice. It's, so port- portfolio building has has been I, I think is a great practice. Maybe not to get a new job, right? right. Um, not just to get a new job, you know, to get a promotion, but just as a as a reflection practice. Practice, um, and that's something that we encourage here at IBM. Um, we talk about this thing, the portfolio of experiences. Yeah. So it's not necessarily just like, oh, here is the beautiful app that I designed, but the portfolio 
portfolio of experiences talks about here are the range of problems that I work. Here's what I learned the, along the way. Here's how I grew to be a better researcher, designer, visual designer, facilitator, right? Here's how I learned to talk to executive stakeholders. Here's how I influence them. And, and that's so important. That's so important. And so I know it's hard when you're just starting out, you might not have real projects. <laughs> um, I hear that a lot. I get that in my LinkedIn. How do I get started if I haven't worked in the field yet? But, you know, write, talk about what maybe you would do, make up a project, do a general assembly course um, and, and get some experience and, and reflect on it. I like portfolio almost as a verb, the way you're talking about mm. it, and less about the noun. And the, yeah, and so that's that's developing the mindset. So it's less about this artifact that you created, more a way of thinking and communicating. And then you have stories to share and stories to tell with people that you mean. So we start. So we started off this 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 thread of the conversation by talking about you didn't use the phrase underrepresented, but I, I think that's an element of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But as I guess as often happens when we talk about you know increasing accessibility of anything, this is this is good advice for everybody. Right, whether you're, regardless of your privilege or, or your representativeness, I don't know. Is there anything else there for for people that are not represented, that are not in the mm. in the sort of majority of what the, the the field looks like? Is there? You said speak up. That was one sort of thing. Yeah, that, that speak made, up, have a point of view. Yeah, but I think ultimately it's on the leadership of where where whoever is leading a team. Um, it, it, the responsibility is on us. It's on me to when I'm hiring say, all right, I posted this on in this platform. I only got these types of people um, applying. I need to look somewhere else. Um, and, and I need to consider the full range of people, but I need to make sure that um, I'm looking for people that aren't currently represented on the team, um, whether that's, you know, we call it URM, underrepresented minority in the HR system. So it's like women, people that are Black, African-American, Latino, Latinx, um, people that have accessibility needs. That is like, that's really critical. I mean, the work that we do, accessibility is so important in 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 um, in this space. And so having people that have the, that experience are like, come on, we've, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we have them? And, and we're working on that. Um, and then also people that identify as LGBT or even people that are veterans, right? Th- those are some of the groups that you want to really look for and prioritize. And, and there are organizations out there that, that cater to those groups, reach out to them. See, you. go to those communities, right? Um, and and that's how you're going to find those people. There's this like you know concept of a pipeline issue, and sure, but right. Let's say you wanted to hire more Black designers. Um, that's something that is really important to me. Uh, go to historically Black colleges and universities, right? Partner with the leaders in that organization. Make sure that the students in that school are getting the education that will that will result in skills that apply to the work that we do, right? There, there's a lot of work that we can do that's not at the hiring stage, but just kind of uh, working a little, just a few years back, (laughs) right? That will radically, radically change the quality of the, the skills that the students have coming out of those institutions and radically change the quality of our organization. That's just one thing you can do, right? Um, um, that will be really impactful. And so I think I see that growing in, in IBM. Um, and, and as a leader, I want to be part of that. I want to do that. And, and it, it's not that hard. 
you know? So let's do it. So uh, you know, there's, I, I think about sort of these, these uh, disciplines maybe nested within each other that you have the tech industry mm-hmm. and its challenges with, you know, and then you, you gave, you've given very good practical advice here, but, you know, it's challenges with hiring underrepresented minorities. And then you have kind of, I don't know, UX or design within the tech industry. Mm-hmm. And then you have design research within that. Yeah. And yeah. um, I think sometimes, and maybe it, maybe that's the same thing across all. But I think sometimes we like the research practice. You know, when you when we have these messier things come up, like oh, we should be talking about ethics. Um, that I fear sometimes the design research just says, well, here defaults to the UX conversation or defaults mm. to the tech conversation. And I'm thinking about again, you know, diversity, and inclusion, and hiring. Uh, you know, what our community looks like. Do we have specific challenges or specific opportunities or, you know, either way within design research that we should be thinking about? Is there something unique for us as a field that that we should be thinking about? For sure. I I, I think maybe you're, you're gesturing to the practice, like that doing that within doing the actual work. I, I um, wasn't, but, okay. but, but yeah. if that's where, where it goes, that's fine. Even in, you know, we're going to do 30 interviews. Uh, who are we interviewing? <laughs> what perspective are they bringing? Um, if they're talking about the challenges that the, you know, a user experiences in their day to day, is that different for men and women? Is that different for somebody who has full vision versus like a low vision? need. Um, so I think even uh, just starting there, um, that's hard. That's challenging. It's it's hard enough to get to, for us in IBM as researchers, to get to users or customers, right? That That's an initial challenge. But then to to make sure that the people that we talk to are a diverse, represent a, a diverse set of experiences and needs, you know, that that's something we could do better. Um, that's something we can prioritize and talk about and cite. And, and so that, I think that's one way. But, but maybe re-articulate your question questions, I can answer it more directly. The, um, there's a tech challenge that, you know, tech isn't diverse enough and, you know, Mm -hmm. tech says we have a pipeline problem and they're not going to historically black colleges, universities to recruit. I mean, sort of the thing that you described, I'm, you know, if you look at how, you know, tech, what tech is doing as an industry, if you look at what design is doing, Mm. I mean, because those are sort of bigger entities with a lot more voice around, here's the challenges, here's how we're failing. Uh, I mean, design research is a smaller practice. Maybe we have... Like it's a practice that my anecdotal data says it's um, it's it's more women than men. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, and I, I don't mean to imply it, that's sufficient diversity. Right, I mean, right. It, just, it, it, it inverts the sort of male dominance a lot of a lot of tech. So maybe that feels good. Oh, where I, you know, I mean, as a man in the field, it's kind of like, oh, cool, I'm in a non-traditional yeah. kind of thing. It doesn't mean that I think we've achieved the kind of diversity that you're talking about. But because you know, people in design research come from the different places than say engineers, software engineers do, uh, because the field offers certain kinds of experiences and pulls on certain kinds of creative mindsets that are different um, because we do different work. Like there's something about research that like the work we do is about telling the stories of other people who are different than us, um, which maybe you could use to justify not being diverse because our practices to sort of, or maybe you would use that to say, well, then we especially better be diverse because of this. (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think there is something privileged to 
design research as a practice, I, I think especially uh, for myself coming out of grad school or going through grad school, going to get an MFA was like a kind of a privileged thing, right? Engineering, becoming an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, it's kind of more certain, right? If you're investing, you know, however many hundreds of thousand dollars in your education, I think for certain groups, maybe socioeconomically from certain contexts, right? You kind of want to go with something that's certain, right? So I think maybe there's something to the way that design researchers are traditionally educated that that's a little inaccessible. And I, I see that changing, but maybe there's something to that and we can pick up on it and amplify less traditional or expensive ways of becoming ethnographers, design researchers, UX researchers. I, I think there's something there that I've, I've definitely had conversations about with people. Um, and, and again, you know, even coming out of grad school, my, pro, my, my graduate program, Transdisciplinary Design at Parsons, was five years old uh, when I graduated, right? And that was the first year that like people really got jobs. Hmm. So, so, you know, working in messy spaces, you know, talking about soft things like feelings, <laughs> you know, um, behaviors uh, is, is a less certain space to be in. The outcomes are less certain and, and less rigid. And so I think, you know, may, maybe that has something to do with it. And if it is, if we find that, maybe that's that's an area that we can like probe in mm-hmm. and find a solution. Good. These are some good signals, I think, to, mm. to toy with. Can you talk a little about this program? Like, how did you find it or what kind of drew you to it? Yeah. Okay. So I uh, went to Howard University, the illustrious Howard University, as we call it, um, a historically black university and studied architecture. Um, I got a professional <laughs> bachelor's of architecture. Uh, it's a five-year degree. And by the fourth year, I was like, absolutely not. Um, very cool. I loved concepting. I would, well, I loved research. I loved like setting context, like under, okay, what is this neighborhood like? How does that influence what this building should be? Um, I love that part of it. I love the concepting and then the visualization, like the diagramming. And, um, but, but did I want to go build buildings and like architects live really difficult lives. They work really hard. Um, um, so, so I said, ah, love some of the things here, how can I pivot or like open up the lens of problems that um, I want to solve? And so I went and got this graduate degree from Parsons and I only found it because I went to go look at a fashion program and uh, I, I looked down the list of programs and it was at the bottom. I was like, transdisciplinary design. What is that? That sounds interesting. So I went and met with the director of the program and I was like, oh, this is a thing like solving complex problems, talking to people understanding systems and and behaviors and spaces. And I was like, oh yeah, I think I'm going to do this. Um, And so that program is really built on the premise that our world is so complex. We have these wicked problems that that one discipline can't solve. And so uh, the the practice of transdisciplinary design, um, if it is a thing, is about um, bringing diverse sets of mindsets, but also methods together um, and using design thinking kind of as a framing for bringing that cross collaboration and, and synthesis of those mindsets. So that's what I, I, I went to do at IBM and it's, it turned out to be a really useful <laughs> education. Does, did you go to IBM from that program? Yes. So I've been at IBM for about four years now. And I mean, the way that you describe the program, and I guess it's no coincidence, the way that you describe what you're doing at IBM and the way you describe what that program's aim are seem to have quite a bit of coherence. Right, right. And and 
finishing up that program, I had, I had no idea that I would work at IBM. I didn't think about that. Um, but when I, when I went and I talked to, you know, the, the folks that were hiring at the time, I was like, oh, wow, there, there, there is a need for this. Um, and it wasn't exactly the context that I thought, but it's, it's been a really great place to learn and practice and then begin to lead. I mean, I guess hindsight is, 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 is always idealized things in retrospect, but it, it's just from the way you described it, it seems like the experience at Howard told you some of what you didn't want to do, but also opened you up to see this transdisciplinary design program. Like it, you were at a point of sort of creative self-discovery that this filled, this was a thing that you didn't know existed that then was right for you right at that time. Exactly. And even while I was at Howard, I mean, you can imagine it's a, it's a place of social innovation and like, you know, the, the student body there is very much engaged in politics and systems. And, and so that was already there, right? That was already something I was thinking about, but then to, to, to move into a program where like that's, that was the basis, the foundation, that was the work that I would do. I was like, oh, this is obvious. And so I think as you, um, as I have, you know, gone from place to place and learning and growing, I like to follow those threads, right? Okay, systems thinking, mapping, social innovation. Right now it's about this customer journey, service design, right? You can kind of follow those threads from place to place and, and build on your interests while building on your expertise. And I think that's that's something else that I would, you know, tell folks that are looking to get into the field, like build on something you already have. If you were a teacher, maybe become a design researcher in the education space. And and that's another way to to break in and and to um, yeah, just build on what you already have. Do you ever uh, do you ever imagine like a, a a future for yourself and think about I don't know whether it's five years or ten years I mean I hate it to be what do you see yourself in ten years I don't oh, mean I don't mean it that way but terrifying <laughs> you know on these kind of you've made these interesting I don't know if they felt like leaps they don't you don't present them as leaps but these zigs and zags I think that sort of came at the right time and you know if you you know if you think about a future for yourself what kinds of work might you be doing or what kinds of roles or organizations do you think yeah, I, I think it's all about missions for me. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I, I was so excited to join Sarah Brooks and the, the Journeys team um, and lead research. But I think it's all about missions. Like, I like the big, messy, like, <laughs> unsolvable problems. And maybe that's like nature. Maybe it's nurture. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's all about that. So maybe it's a criminal justice system. Maybe it's food justice. Maybe it's, you know, design research diversity. Um, I think anything that's like hard and interesting and I you don't quite know the answer is is something that I want to do. And so I think if I look five or ten years out, maybe at I'm I'm at IBM still doing that. Or maybe, maybe, you know, I've learned enough that I am going out and I want to like focus on a problem. So I don't know what it looks like, but I know it's a mission. It's always a mission. Anything you want to plug? Yeah. So um, if you're interested in IBM and, and, and practicing design or even just learning about how we talk about design and the work that we do, you can go to IBM.com slash design and, and that'll kind of launch you into our world. Um, you can also reach out to me. I'm Ashley O. Graham on Twitter. And thank you. Well, thanks for a really great conversation. And uh, we explored a lot of different uh, nooks and crannies and I think it's fascinating. So thanks a lot for taking the time. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for being here for this episode. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and also Pocket Casts, CastBox, and Overcast. If it has cast in the name, we're probably there. Go to the website, portugal.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd.